Sustainability in Finance. Sustainability in Finance. A podcast hosted by the International Sustainable Finance Center in Prague. Join us and explore different perspectives of finance and its importance for the Central and Eastern European region. Hello and welcome. My name is Julian Toth and you are listening to Sustainability in Finance. The following episode is an audio recording of a panel discussion from the CE Sustainable Finance Summit, the largest conference of its kind in the region, which took place in Prague in May 2022. So hello and good afternoon to the session. And the debate we're going to have today is a little around what data is necessary to drive the change that we need to see in sustainable investment today. Um, I'm joined by a prestigious panel. So my name is Nadia Humphreys. I work at Bloomberg in Sustainable Finance Solutions. Um, I also have uh, the real joy and pleasure of working with, with everybody in the panel, actually, in terms of the platform for sustainable finance and some of the work we do to support FRAG. So it's a real pleasure to speak to you today. So without further ado, maybe if I could start Maud, with you, we hear a lot of acronyms related to ESG, um, particularly as it relates to sustainable standards. We hear the words FRAG, CSRD, ISSB. Maybe could you step us back a stage and just explain the landscape before we start? Absolutely. It's probably a good step to, uh, to begin with because I think this contributes to uh, what a lot of people call the uh, alphabet soup. So let me maybe travel back in time, not too far, but just so that you understand what has happened now, you know, since the Paris Agreement in 2015. So here Europe commits to, you know, reducing its greenhouse gas emission and limit the rise in temperature. Immediately afterward, it sets up the regulatory momentum that we've been discussing and will continue discussing this week. In 2018, the European Commission adopts the European Action Plan for Sustainable Growth. And this is really a cornerstone of everything we are, we are going to discuss. Because it had three main objectives. One, redirect capital flows towards sustainable activities. And that is mainly taxonomy, which you heard about this morning with Martin. Second objective is to better and more deeply embed the integration of sustainability risks into the business and risk management practices. And that leads, among other things, to SFDR, standing for Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation. That applies exclusively to our financial institutions, mainly asset managers, and it's requiring from them that they disclose a lot of information as to how they embed those sustainability risks into their investment policies and into the characteristics of their products. And the third objective is the one that's going to uh, give birth to the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, which is currently under our negotiation and should unfold um, in the next uh, few days if everything goes well. And that is about creating a common language about sustainability information that's going to feed into each one of those broader objectives and texts, be it the taxonomy, be it SFDR, and a number of you know other um, pieces of uh, European legislation. So CSRD, and this is where we come into FRAG and the likes, is basically requesting European businesses of a certain size to provide information, regulated information, following standards, so sustainability and reporting standards. Just like we have the IFRSs for financial information, there will be the 
brace yourself, that's another acronym, ESRS for European Sustainability Reporting Standards. And this is where EFRAG comes in. You might know EFRAG as being the technical advisor to the European Commission for the endorsement of the IFRS on financial information. Now EFRAG is going to become the same technical advisor for non-financial reporting information. So EFRAG has been working for the past two years based on, on the CSRD proposal to draft a first set of sustainability reporting standards. There are 13 of them. They were out end of April and they're open to public consultation. And that you often read being compared with what is being brewed in the US by the SEC on uh, climate-related uh, disclosure requirements and by the ISSB, which is the International Sustainability Standard Board, which is the second leg of the uh, IFRS Foundation. With the IASB, we are working on financial reporting standard and the ISSB working on sustainability reporting standards. So you see a different, you know, um, there are three different layers in terms of how all of the bricks combine together. The big text with SFDR, taxonomy and CSRD are what we call level one. This is European law, which is then being, you know, uh, reworked to be implemented in level two. And that is what EFRAG is currently doing in Europe, mirroring what's being done on the international stage by the SEC, which is jurisdictional law approach, and the ISSB approach, which is the um, international approach. And I think with that, I've given you enomacronism to begin with. That is fantastic. Well, thank you. I've, I've never known anyone so succinctly lay out the full international legislative program so, so, so well. Thank you very much. Uh, Ingmar, maybe if I turn to you. So the, more touch a little bit on the fact that we've got some European reporting standards, a little bit on the fact that we've got these international standards, and a little bit on the fact that the SEC in the US is now proposing reporting regimes. Um, given your role reviewing all of those, where do you think there's synchronicity or maybe a little bit of asymmetry between the regimes at the moment? Yeah, thanks, Nadia, and uh, thanks, Maud, for laying the ground. There's more, I think there's more convergence than, we, than, than a lot of people think, and that is quite encouraging. Secondly, I think also a message that we pass, no, no matter where, whether we're in, I guess, in Paris or in Berlin or in Prague or in Warsaw, is that there's a lot of stuff happening outside Europe. It's not like the Europeans are going it alone, right? I think there's a lot of dynamics, and so now it's a question, I think now the key question is rather one of alignment than whether the others are also doing it. I mean, we, we generally differentiate different building stones of disclosure, right? So there's, um, maybe some of you have seen it, we did this big comprehensive assessment of state and trends of disclosure around the world with something that's called the International Platform on Sustainable Finance. Mm -hmm. IPSF, if you want another acronym, also <laughs> set up by the European Commission to facilitate this convergence a little bit. Yeah? I think they have been doing a good job. So if I, so, you know, if I think about, uh, Assurance, yeah, limited assurance in, in the SEC proposal, you know, limited assurance in the CSRD. Materiality, let's park that for a second. Scope, also quite similar. So acknowledging that there's large corporates and that there's smaller ones that will have challenges, so we need simplified standards. So in the CSRD, we call that simplified reporting standard. And now the EFRA colleagues are working exactly on that as well, right? Because that's important, right, for a small company like the one that I'm running, for example, I wouldn't be one of facing all those EFRAC standards. I want to have a simplified version. The Americans are doing it in a very similar manner. On disclosure content, I think maybe there's a difference, right? So, so most constituencies are focusing on climate. 
Well, we have now already started exploring, I mean, I think that's right to call it that way, exploring the other environmental dimensions, right, by the one that Martin referred to earlier. So there's a difference. So at the moment, the, our American friends are focusing on the, on the climate side. And in terms of maybe materiality is the key difference, really, right? And that's also, if you like, the key difference between the European, the European standard that is, that is based on that principle of double materiality and the ISSB and where they are coming from historically, which is a purely financial materiality perspective. And I think that is maybe the most important difference today. And um, yeah, I personally think, first of all, this is a fantastic opportunity that all of these things are currently in cancel consultation, right? This is, is. I mean, if it's not now, when are we going to have that conversation about alignment, right? Mm -hmm. So we, um, I'm also one of the, in one of the um, expert groups, the non-climate expert group of EFRAC, so was working on the platform and it's kind of coming all nicely together. So, so the EFRA consultation is open until August 8th. August 8th. The SEC, so the US proposal is open until 17th of June. The ISSB is open until end of July. Yeah. Yeah, so this is probably the moment to work on more alignment. I think that's great, Ingwer. And maybe if we could go to the state of the world today, Isla. So you represent a financial institution sat here today for EIB. What's reporting like for the bank at the moment? Straightforward, easy? Easy, I don't think, is quite the word. And uh, thank you for the previous speakers. That is very clear. I mean, we are sort of governmental organization in the sense that we are public sector bank. So we, are, we don't have exactly the same duties and responsibilities as a private sector bank, so we only take the applicable part, so we are already getting off a little bit more easily, probably, than, than a normal financial institution. But if you think about that currently EIB is doing a sustainability report, the number part of which we also do, according to the GRI, but also according to the SASPs. Then we do a carbon footprint report, and we also now produce a TCFD report. So that's quite a lot of reporting. We are also now trying to look whether should we do something about the SFRD. We managed some small amounts of money for third parties, but CSRD, which part of it would be applicable for us. And then we'll see what comes out of ISSB one day. The US one we probably do not need to care about, but it's, as you see, it's already quite a lot of things. It's not only the alphabet soup, which I think you can get your head around fairly quickly, but then what are all these reportings and, and, uh, how do they link to each other? And uh, is there just how much room is there for some standardization and uh, amalgamation? I think that would be most welcome, not only for us, but also people who do the full Monty on all of these. And uh, well, I guess that SEC is doing something that per se is positive that they are doing something. I mean, a couple of years ago, we had them in a very different place. So let's not complain now that they are doing something. But whatever all these initiatives are, and I agree, the IPSF, the international platform, which is sort of intergovernmental platform to talk about sustainability, like taxonomies and disclosures, I think that would be most welcome if they get to some kind of a mapping or comparison there. It would. Uh, so there, there is work to do definitely in that field. So, Ayla, what I'm hearing from you is there's already, number one, a lot of reporting from financial institutions just trying to meet with the many regimes out there at the moment. And number two, harmonization of regimes would be very welcome. So, simplification, harmonization. So, more, maybe if I can come back to you. So, there, there's already the non-financial reporting directive out there right now. There's already a, a lot of independent reports, so some people have GRI frameworks or TCFD separate reports. Can you explain to me the benefit of introducing yet another regime here? So it's actually not yet another regime, it's a more streamlined one and a standardized one. 
If the NFRD was really, I think, a breaking through initiative back in 2014, because he really laid out the, you know, the framework as to how European businesses were encouraged, for those in scope, it was actually, uh, you know, mandatory to provide sustainability related information. He didn't say to what framework or to what standard they should turn to to actually provide the information, which is why until now, it's really hard to compare what you get from the numerous businesses that already provide sustainability information because they all use different standards, right? Some will use the SASB, which is a very financial materiality, investor information focused, US-based industry approach. So it covers a number of information, but no information that would be comparable across industries. You have the GRI, which is the other leg of the double materiality, which is impact materiality. And the two don't necessarily easily link to each other. And we all know there's no such thing as financial materiality being triggered by risks and opportunities onto the enterprise value, completely separated from impacts from the entity on its wider environment, right? The two are closely interconnected and they breathe together. So today, and I'm, I'm just citing two of the main, uh, you know, um, frameworks and uh, standards. A lot of you uh, might have heard of TCFD, which is very much focused and exclusively focused on climate, which sets some sort of, you know, standards about how to approach disclosures related to climate. But here again, just like the um, NFRD doesn't tell you, if you're going to have to report on your scope one, this is an ugly term, but I'm, I'm sure we'll have opportunity to come back to that, your scope one greenhouse gas emissions, well, if you figure out which other framework you want to refer to to provide that information, right? And this is where the initiative from the European Commission is really fundamental with the CSRD. So that directive that's going to further harmonize and introduce coherence, I think which we, we lack coherence today, right? It's, it's really detrimental to everyone by really telling sustainability aspects by sustainability aspect. This is what you need to report and how you need to report. It's basically a dictionary, right? Where you say, I want to talk about biodiversity, biodiversity. Okay. So those are going to be material for me, this is how I should report. So the users of that information will know exactly what that kind of information refers to and how to interpret it. We're still facing challenges in terms of interpretation, but at least if we can be sure we're talking the same language, I think this is a major leap forward. And this is what the CSRD is aiming to do by really standardizing, creating that new language basically about sustainability information. And that is also what the ISSB is trying to do, but from a very specific approach, which is financial materiality and um, the effects of those uh, risks on uh, enterprise value. That's really interesting. Can I chip yeah, in please just, do. Just real quick on the S. So we're talking a lot. We work not. So I'm an old industry guy. I used to work for DG Industry. And we work a lot with companies, so non-financial companies, I mean, right? And so, so they're facing exactly what Mo just described, right? So we have loads of financial institutions also that are already um, reporting something, all a bit differently. And a lot of big corporates who are reporting already something, all a bit differently, yeah. though. And just imagine you're in the supply chain of a big company, or you have your next you know, investor engagement conversation with your investor or your bank. And each of them, however, unfortunately, comes with a slightly different set of questions and different requirements. And that is the ultimate nightmare 
for any company. So what we have been trying to discuss with SMEs about was, uh, look, it's probably in your interest that this is harmonized, as, as Mon said, and standardized. So because that trend is there anyway. So banks and, and big companies in your supply chain are going to come to you anyways, and they're going to ask you a set of different questions, or maybe a standardized set, even of simplified questions. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly, this makes total sense even for the real economy, for SMEs who, who initially were thinking, whoa, could you please go away with all this regulation? And now suddenly realizing, wow, that, that, that might actually help me. Yeah. So sorry, yeah, just to bring no, in this it's sector. Like super important, Ingmar. So, so basically what we're saying is the headache that Isla talked about, even though, yeah. in all fairness, the public sector body may not have the burden that a, a private sector may have. We're saying that the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, when complete, should ultimately absorb things like the TCFD requirements, the GRI requirements, and create a clean and standard set. So maybe, Ingmar, if I could come back, I'll let you have a quick drink before I do. <laughs> One of the things that definitely I observe in my day job, and you talked about this a little bit, is the inconsistency of reporting. Now, you hear us on panels talk about complete, consistent, clear reporting. And people don't, I think, really connect with what that means. What we observe is a company, year on year, may be reporting for different subsidiaries. Mm -hmm. A company may be cherry picking which legal entity or which metric it wants to report. And definitely right now in corporate sustainability reporting, we see them as PR tools for companies. They choose selectively what they report that paints them in a, a good light. There is no requirement to list out all material metrics. So, Ingmar, do you think these proposals are going to change that landscape and how when we start to look internationally as well? Yeah, I think it has the potential to, first of all, I mean, first of all, there's an, there's an implicit materiality ranking in the taxonomy, right? Because, I mean, theory the taxonomy should only cover us where cover sector environmental objective combinations where, where those are material. Secondly, I think uh, if we look at SASB today, the sustainability accounting standard board indicators, I think many of us would disagree with the way they are today describing materiality. You know, one example is, for example, where they're saying, for the land use sector, biodiversity is immaterial. I don't think even from a financial material perspective, that still holds. So I think in that regard, um, that's really going to help us a lot. I think... I don't know what, what you're thinking, and maybe, maybe Martin will disagree now, but I mean, it's a bit unfortunate, and I'm not, not blaming anybody, but it's like we're having, the, all these things are being developed in, in parallel. So the, in, the, in the perfect world, we would have first had the taxonomy maybe, and then play with it, then refine it, you know, and then and have, the, um, have the disclosure, so that we have the data available. You know, I wanted to push this forward. We're all doing it in parallel, and that's a bit catch-22 sometimes, mm -hmm. right? So, so I, however, I think it's maybe not such a problem, I don't know, because I, we will be able to revise the taxonomy. I think you, you made the point before um, that, yeah, and Ma Martin, you made the point before, you know, that companies are kind of, they're trying it out, and they will eventually find points where it just doesn't work. But, you know, how were you supposed to know from the start? It's, so in that sense, maybe this will still be taking a while until it's like perfectly harmonized. Plus, we don't want perfect harmonization from the top, right? We rather want it to be informed the direction coming from materiality standards. So that's, that's good. But then the market still has to try it out. So you, you may know, everybody, that Nadia is, is heading the, maybe what is currently the most important 
group in the platform, which is the one on usability, right? And that is where we just discussed what are we going to focus on in the coming month in the platform, and that is what we're going to uh, focus on. And, and I think that's going to help us a great deal in, in making better. But ultimately, I think it's this, this cycle, and we always have to go yeah. through it and refine it on the way. I, Ingmar, I really like the notion of, of refining and improving. I think a lot of people expect day one perfection. And, and I think we've acknowledged, and, and definitely in, in Martin's talk a little earlier today, he acknowledged this is part of a journey and we're going to continue to refine and grow. The taxonomy is by no means complete. Uh, one other thing, well, maybe can, I can touch a little on the materiality. So what I've understood from you is the US regime is looking at metrics that are financially material to me. They represent a material impact to the enterprise value. On the other side, what we're seeing the European regime with things like the EU taxonomy trying to do is talk about impact. How can a company have impact on environmental or other ESG-based metrics? One observation that we've had in the market, if we look at data maybe over the last year, uh, you've mentioned the sustainable finance disclosure regulation. Mm -hmm. And within that, you can classify products as light green or dark green and therefore, what we've observed is over the last 12 months, the flows, the financial flows, have been more to those green classified products than to the non-green. Mm -hmm. In fact, 51% of the flows in the last year have gone green. In the same period of time, we've seen global carbon emissions rise. Do you think that is an issue at the moment in terms of materiality, that we right now are looking at the ESG materiality affecting the company rather than the impact? And do you think, therefore, that CSRD is going to help maybe change some of the direction of that? It's an excellent question. I'll make an answer in two folds, actually. One, I think one of the challenges of this SFRD is, SFDR, sorry, is that it doesn't describe or define what green, light green or dark green actually means, right? There's no criteria to say this is light green and this is dark green. This is how it's been used or understood, but I think it's misunderstood to be on the objective of SFDR. It's just a way to encourage investors to bucket their portfolio, right? But the interpretation of what is light green or dark green is left to the investor itself. And we have to be honest, it's a tricky business to decide, you know, what shade of green you are in if you're, if you're green at all. So that, that's the first thing, and I think it is important to have in mind because that's the link with, you know, we see greenhouse gas emissions keeping rising while we have more and more flows towards, uh, or at least being tagged green. Well, part of the answer is that, right? We don't know yet, and maybe that's an improvement to be made to SFDR to, in a further revision of uh, the regulation, to make it clear what the criteria for green is or is not. And there will definitely have immediate and direct links with the taxonomy, it's obvious, right? But then if we go back to the materiality, I think this is what I tried to say early on. There is no such thing as sustainability risks, take uh, the uh, climate risk, for example, being completely independent from the impact, in this case, how much greenhouse gas I emit on a yearly basis, because the more you can put into the pot, the higher or the biggest your, your climate-related risks, mm -hmm. right? So it's, which is why you'll see, and I think we'll have an opportunity uh, via Ingmar to come back to, uh, you know, the comparison between the SEC, ISSB, and uh, European uh, exposure drafts. You'll see a different, two different approaches in the European approach where the impact materiality is equally important as risk to the financial value, 
for the reason I just explained, right? If you deteriorate the environment you basically rely on to produce a product or a service, then you've, you're shooting yourself in the foot. It's just a question of time as to when the boomerang is going to come back and, and, and hit your face, right? So this is why it really doesn't make sense, and this is where the European approach, I think, is really trailblazing by saying, guys, yes, it's important to look at the impact on financial performance, but that cannot be done properly, consistently, and completely if you don't pay attention to your footprint to the larger environment, ESNG, right? In what we are actually uh, proposing and submitting to public consultation in the EFRAG exposure draft, you'll see a main difference with the ISSB proposal, which is in your, you have to describe your transition plan along, you know, the, the Paris Agreement and the requirement of the taxonomy, you can't count in your greenhouse gas emissions reduction, your carbon offsets, your avoided emissions, because this is not, you know, gross reduction. It's artificial reduction. It's, it can be legitimate in many ways, but then you're not doing the best job you can to reduce some of those emissions. This is a very concrete example of why double materiality is not just the addition of a financial materiality approach like that of SASB or ISSB plus GRI, which is impact materiality, the two have to talk together. So ultimately, the disclosure you will have to provide will have to inform both materiality legs. And this you can find, and Ingmar, you, you, you'll tell more about this throughout the, um, you know, um, the, the two um, public consultations. No, definitely. Um, Ingmar, I'll come back to you, but I wanted to, Isla just to touch on, on you for a second, because in the earlier conversation that Linda had with Martin, it was about the transition plan. It was about capital expenditure that is typically financed through debt. Um, and what we've seen in the market today is a proliferation of green bonds and loans. In fact, I think between 2020 and 2021, we saw green bond and loan issuance grow from 400 billion to 720 billion, nearly doubling. And Europe is about 50% of that market in green bonds right now. So maybe a similar question as I asked to Maud, do you think green bonds at the moment are having the right impact? Are they measuring the right thing? Yes, that's a good question, and there are plenty of uh, sort of environmentalists asking this question as well. Not 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 only them, but the green bonds just tell tell you about how much of a usually capex is being done by by that issuer. The impact is usually given in relative terms. It's not in absolute terms. So it just gives you kind of the information about the direction. And uh, it gives the opportunity for the issuer to say that this is what I'm doing. I'm going to that direction. I'm going greener. But it, it's as an absolute measurement, it's, it's not uh, very handy because usually you don't get absolute measurements. And also, although the green bonds, they are usually, I don't know the percentage, but it must be pretty high. It's all about renewable energy and energy efficiency. I think that must be like three quarters of what of what is being done. So that's all good, but it's you can't really say what the real impact is because you don't have the absolute numbers, absolute before and absolute afterwards. And of course, we still have to, in all of this reporting and everything that we are talking about, I would just remind of one very important thing. This is all about private sector. We are leaving the public sector out of it. And public sector is very important in good and bad. And uh, I don't think we can have a full picture of everything if we only look at corporates and banks. 
Yeah, I think that's really fair. And at the moment, is it fair to say that with green bond issuance, it's kind of market regulated? The markets come up with a set of standards and those are applied right now. What do you think the repercussions to that market will be when standards are set upon it? What do you think are the likely consequences there? Well, I think it will sort of uh, impose some kind of discipline because I've been involved in the, in the green bond market since the beginning, so some 15 years. And if there was one uh, frequently asked question that was around all this time until this taxonomy started to develop, it was this, yeah, but what is really green or what is green enough? Or, well, if you have a solar farm and solar panels which are toxic uh, to the, as to their components, or if you have child labor being used for the, for the fabrication of them, is this really sustainable? All these silly questions kind of go away with the definitions from taxonomy that not only do you need a sort of positive contribution on this side, but you also should not do any harm here or in the, in the social sense. So I think that will clarify a lot of things in the market already has, because I don't hear these questions anymore since two years. So it will do a lot. And actually, to me, the taxonomy on the financing side is, is where, to me, it's very useful because it's a bit like, a, indeed, this dictionary. I'm doing this kind of investment. Now I look up on page 234. What does it say about this kind of uh, investment? If I do it, what do I need to take into account in terms of other environmental factors and, and so on in order to be fully sustainable and taxonomy aligned? So to me, that's very useful there. And it's really should be used as a dictionary and uh, not to be staring at how big it is. So I think it will, and it already has, like I said, people start to sort of go towards that, even if not fully maybe uh, engaged to be fully taxonomy aligned, but it certainly uh, put, uh, has put a discipline into this market. And one thing I think which was quite important when we were working on that proposal was that the issuer should also explain how this green bond issuance relates to their overall strategy to be Paris aligned. So you can't be doing something here with a little bit of green and the rest is not green or sustainable. So you have to explain your whole business idea how you are going to be aligned. So that I think is also a very important step. It's a narrative more than a disclosure or a specific one, but it's a very important narrative, I think. Thanks, Isla. So for any new issuance, it's almost like a checklist for debt structuring. You know, how at maturity will this demonstrate substantial contribution? And then is it raising the bar in terms of do no significant harm to any other environmental objective, which is a really positive forward step. But as I mentioned at the start, we have a lot of existing green debt issued today. Will there be the view that you can taxonomy proxy existing green debt? Kind of what are, what are your thoughts there? I think some of that at least one should be able to proxy, at least in terms of the significant contribution. I think that should be, for example, renewable energy. That's not too, should not be a rocket science, basically, unless you have some big environmental questions in terms of biodiversity or something. But usually that's rather a minority. So I think that can be done. As to the do no significant harm, quite complex to do in retrospect, it's probably complex to do even going forward. And the minimum social standards are, I think, depending a little bit on the country of, of where these investments happen. So I think you can do that partially. But even if you cannot always prove everything, I would still give that market some kind of benefit of the doubt. Why? Because since its beginning, and especially since, I would say, 2013-14, when it started to grow and become more institutional, uh, it's been really pushed and supported by all the public sector, by governments, by central banks, by supervisors, everybody 
was told the private sector do these green bonds, this is really good, invest in green. And we didn't have any taxonomy, so nobody could be using it, that's very clear. But it was so clearly flagged by all the government and government affiliates that this is what you should be doing. So uh, I feel a bit uncomfortable with the idea that now we are sort of day zero and we start from zero and nothing what existed before this day is sort of anywhere. So yes, you may take take it with a pinch of salt, you may take it with a discount factor, be however precise you want to be, but I would give it some some brownie points anyway, so that, that, that it's some, recognized. <laughs> some credit, but yeah. for, for sure. Um, and you mentioned a little earlier in terms of sovereign. So sovereign, as you rightly point out at the moment, are not included in some of these standards. Do you think it's easy to look at sovereign debt and apply things like taxonomy standards to it? I think at least for the future that yes. I mean, why would it be very, that much more difficult for them? Every issuer decides what, they, what kind of uh, investments they, they finance with their green bonds. And uh, they can uh, pick and choose according to that. But I don't think it's that much more difficult for governments than it is for a private sector actor or for a bank. I think for a corporate, it's usually they have a big investment or investment program, and that's what they finance. Banks, it's usually refinancing a pool of assets or then doing like we have done sort of new loans. Uh, but I would not buy the arguments from the governments that this is more complex for them. Everybody keeps saying about... Uh, about tax. It doesn't fit my business model. You hear about fund industry. No, it doesn't really fit my business model. It's better for somebody else. I really have heard equity people saying, that, oh, but this is much more for the fixed income markets, whereas fixed income market people say, but this really, this is really much more easy to use in, in equity markets. So, you know, get your act together. And Thank you, Isla, for talking through my, <laughs> yes. my choking fit. Ingmar, if I can come to you a little bit on, excuse me, some of the international standards pieces. So we've talked a lot about European and, and double materiality and the fact that that doesn't exist in the US market. Could you share a little bit about the SEC plans and kind of how you see them correlating and fitting in here? Yeah, I love this term of reasonable investor, which is, uh, is obviously <laughs> the persona that uh, the regulator in the US imagines and when they worry about whether something is material, right? And so, my, I mean, that's, I always have to smile a little bit when I hear reasonable investor. I guess that could mean a lot of things. So in that sense, I, I kind of, when I, when I read through it, and, and also obviously the, um, the accompanying like, statement by the SEC, I didn't think it was so, so utterly dissimilar. I mean, for the point that Mo just made earlier, there's not a clear-cut line between what is double and what is financial materiality. So I think that is important to keep in mind. So a lot of, you know, uh, like the, the inside-out perspective, so in a way, uh, the way that a company is affecting the environment is... is can come home through a lot of channels. And if we reduce that to regulation, then we would have, see stark differences because obviously the environmental damage is regulated quite differently. But when we get to, um, you know, integrated global supply chains, when we get to reputational issues, market and consumer trends, well, I mean, consumers don't, I mean, consumers are not rational, right? Yeah. Consumers don't react to carbon price signals. They, they react to a lot of things, a mixed bag of things that's eventually changing their behavior, and you're not shielded from that, even if you're in a, uh, in a constituency that will never, ever regulate carbon, right? So in that sense, I think that just to uh, support Maud's point of earlier, it's not a clear-cut distinction. And if that's the biggest difference, this materiality um, definition, uh, then, and then we know, however, that the difference between those are at best blurry, then I think that um, shows a bit toward, uh, leads toward convergence. What I think, there's this global trend, I think, um, you know, China has signaled future adoption of the ISSB standard. 
ISSB signing an agreement with GRI, you know, the Global Reporting Initiative, which uses the double materiality definition. EFRAC is also talking with GRI. Um, so, you know, maybe again, um, that, that is also very useful. If I, if I just focus on EU and US convergence, I mean, everybody in the US and Europe is very much interested in what's happening in China as well, right? This that doesn't happen in isolation. So, so I think that gives us also a good indication of where is everybody else going. And, and there, I think, uh, what would be really, really important is, um, can, can we, and I, maybe that's also a question back to Maud, if I may, um, without wanting to put you on the spot, but I mean, is it conceivable that we're going to have a global baseline that is a bit more along the lines of, you know, ISSB, GRI plus, hopefully? from an EU perspective, and is it then that wouldn't we anyways need then maybe a certain, allow for certain certain differences between constituencies because they are just different and there are different points. So so that would be uh, maybe maybe my question on this. It's an excellent question that we've debated at length, you know, during the, uh, the work of uh, the task force of FRAG. First, I think it's important to remind everyone that EFRAG, and it's part of the CSRD mandate, right? So EFRAG hasn't been creative starting from a blank page. They went through what the CSRD says and they went through the menu, right? So it's not burgeoning from, from nowhere out of the blue. In those requirements from the CSRD, there's a specific provision that says I'm changing the wording, right? But don't start from scratch. Use what is already out there that is universally used and has proved to be, uh, you know, uh, a constructive uh, step forward. And that includes the work of the SASB, CDSB, TCFD for climate, GRI. GRI was actually part of the working groups uh, within EFRAG, right? Yeah. We had regular discussion with the uh, technical readiness expert groups from the ISSB. So it was really a core construction with those international organizations and, and we basically started from what they already offer, right? So yes, at some point, I think that is the global baseline, right? Regardless of what you can read in the press, which is oftentimes more political than technical, but for a good reason. And that's your point about, you know, there will need to be some room for maneuver for constituencies because the sustainability agenda is highly political for a number of reasons, right? There's the Green Deal in the EU, that's our roadmap. Everything we do around sustainability has to be driven and, you know, converging with the commitment EU made by adopting and updating the, uh, the Green Deal. That doesn't exist in other uh, geographies and, and continents, right? So, yes, we have a different uh, political agenda, more or less ambitious. In the EU, it's time-wise very ambitious for good reasons. And in terms of scope, it's also super ambitious because we're not only looking at climate, we're looking at all of the other uh, environmental objectives, and Martin alluded to uh, the fact that the taxonomy has yet to be uh, completed on that, you know, non-climate uh, part of the taxonomy, plus the social aspects, plus Do governance. Do you think it's too ambitious? I think we in, to in, absolute, in absolute terms, I don't think so, because there are good reasons for all of the different compartments of the, the EU Green Deal, including the just transition, right, from the social side. What I think is going to be very challenging, and that's something we really need to pay attention to, is the speed at which we want to cover all that ground. Yeah. Because for lots of uh, reporting entities, and including for uh, you know the professional sustainable finance, we have to be aware. Uphill uh, trend is super steep. A lot of the newcomers in, into the CSRD scope have never produced sustainability information, so the gap is pretty high. 
And even before you can produce sustainability and report that uh, sustainability information and report that information, and that is something everyone is facing, I think, in every compartment of society, we're facing a skills challenge. You don't report on a strategy you don't have, right, on sustainability. You don't have a strategy if you're not aware of what your risks, opportunities, and the impacts are. But a lot of those, especially on environment, are very much science-based. We are not all engineers. So we have to keep, uh, you know, reminding everyone that this is what we're talking about at the end of the day. What will be the sustainable businesses of the future, you know, knowing everything we know now? And that cannot be reduced to a dictionary of uh, terms um, you have to publish to basically tell your story, right? We need to accompany, and this is why there's a taxonomy, that is why there's a number of tools. But it's not just because there's a tool out there that everyone is ready to use the tool. And Martin, again, this morning insisted on, you know, we, we have to pay attention to implementation, because it's going to be that moment where we test, you know, the uh, relevance of the tools and the readiness of the users of those tools to effectively use those tools. And that is not going to happen overnight. So I think, back to your question, is, isn't it too ambitious? Again, in absolute uh, no, I think this is the right way to go. But now we have to engage with uh, all of the stakeholders to assess how reasonably quickly we can go, and we can't go at the same speed and pace on each one of those compartments. And this is what we need to figure out collectively with, with the professionals of our sustainable finance, the professionals of you know real economy, and there's a difference between the large players and the smaller players. So for all of the, those people who would like a black and white you know, uh, answer to that, I'm sorry there is not. Like The world is not black and white, right? So we'll have to adjust. Yeah, that's, it's the urgency with which we need to, to act, I think, is the, the message coming loud and clear. I've got a couple of questions coming through. Please do continue to raise them. I'll, I'll ask a couple now, actually. So, one of the things we've looked at in terms of data previously is the fact that if I look at the stock 600 or the S&P 500 right now, the largest listed companies in mature markets, I still see between 20-25% not even reporting baseline carbon metrics. That's not a good statistic, right? That should be kind of your one-on-one -on -one ESG reporting right now. So one of the questions I've got here is, do you think that ISSB will solve most of the standardization issues, maybe unblock some of the points that Maud mentioned about why are these companies not reporting these base metrics to start with? Do you think that ISSB, Ingmar, will, will be the fix of this? Yeah, I mean, you know, 1970, Akalov, right, this seminal article on how information asymmetries absolutely lead to the fact that we are, that markets inefficiently allocate capital, right? You want a Nobel Prize for that. And that's what this whole disclosure stuff is built upon, you know, really sound economics and that kind of observation. You know, if there's no transparency in the market, it's good for those guys with the worst performance to hide behind the others. And the transaction costs are high to figure out, right? So, I mean, so in that sense, it's not ISSB is going to solve that, you know, they may not going to make it maybe easier, but ultimately it's mandatory disclosure regulation that's going to solve it. And the good news is that more than 90% of GDP globally, like, sorry, rephrase, countries representing more, more than 90% of GDP are either have mandatory disclosure in place or are working on it currently. Yeah. 
<laughs> because and, and the governor of the Chinese central bank said, said as much last year that he says, you know, we need mandatory reporting. Yeah, but it's obviously great, I think, to have this in parallel now. I think that's better than maybe two years back where, where maybe, maybe the EU was the only, only game in town. And now we're trying to do it in parallel. So we, we work on an international level on alignment while a lot of these regulations are popping up and they have a yardstick, yeah, to orient themselves against. I think that is, that is really super crucial here at this moment to get some convergence. Also, on biodiversity, we have now, in parallel, the conversations in the reasonably newly set up task force on nature-related disclosure risks. So in parallel, we have this proposal now from the platform, from us, actually, <laughs> I suppose. And then we have um, the effort proposal on, on the drafting standard. But then we also have this, in parallel, the, the work on, on the convergence. And so what I, I, I know that probably doesn't just do justice to it, but I would call this, I would see the EFROC standard like a smart of really, a set of really smart questions being asked. And now we have to start answering these questions. And we were, again, I come back to my cycle. We're going to run into problems, but we're going to find out so much more about it. And so elements that I really like about the, that are so crucial in the US environment about the SEC proposal is obviously the safe harbor provisions, right? It's so important. I mean, I'm forced to report my supply chain emissions. That's good, right? If I think about biodiversity, I mean, the bulk of biodiversity destruction on the planet that's linked to EU economic activity is not happening in the EU. So if we don't do supply chain disclosure, I might as well not do disclosure, to be honest, for some of these things. But what they're also saying is like, okay, you, you know, we, we talked about that earlier, no? I mean, all the liabilities that come with it, you have to shield companies from that initially, right? So there's some smart consideration of what the state of the world we're in today, but at the same time where we need to get. So asking companies to, to give it a shot at disclosing them, but not, you know, bringing them to court if the scope three emissions are wrong because they had to rely on other people's estimates, then I think that is maybe the right way forward. So in that sense, yeah, this, this baseline, this simplified baseline for everybody, I think is really, really, really good news because it's going to maybe avoid further divergence of national schemes. And secondly, I think the mandatory nature of disclosure regulation is super important in actually making it happen. In terms of supply chain, I think you raise a really important point there, Ingmar, because what, what you want people to do is dig into the supply chain and uncover their issues and then work to remediate them. If you go too heavy too soon on legislating around not having issues in your supply chain, people will pull back from trying to uncover and people will go straight to kind of glossing over. So another question, and Maud, maybe if I could direct this one to you. So what would you advise the regulators in Central Eastern Europe uh, to do to streamline the adaptation to new reporting standards? Um, how can they tackle the information regarding bottlenecks, which I think was a point you'd made a little bit earlier. So that's one of the questions that's come through. That's a tough one. Well, acknowledging the fact that whatever comes out of Brussels, you know, imposes itself on the, on the member states, I'm not sure how much room for maneuver they have. I think the uh, more than streamlining, because this is going to be part of our, you know, our one legislative process within the CSRD and then the adoption of the standards by the Commission, because we keep referring to EFRAG as being the standard setter. EFRAG is only the technical advisor, right? The decision is that of the Commission. So the equivalent of our ISSB in Europe is the European Commission. It's, it's DG, DG FISMA, right? So that, 
the member states, the, the only way they can, you know, influence that is to respond to the public consultation. I think it's, I really want to take that opportunity to invite everyone to contribute to the three, or well, at least two. Oh, let's do all the three. All the three <laughs> public consultations, because this is your moment to express concerns, to raise your hand, saying, guys, this might work for Western Europe because you, you're kind of ahead of the curve for a number of reasons. But for us, given where we are now, it's going to be really a big gap. And you have to all help us, you know, breach that gap. So I, I think this, I would really encourage, uh, you know, the uh, uh, national regulators to, to really engage uh, through uh, the public consultation uh, process because if they don't voice their concern now, tomorrow is going to be too late, right? There's still no room to adjust there. Ingmar, you want to chip in? Can, can I chip in? Mm. If, uh, sorry. Uh, I think, secondly, I would, I would think every government should set up some kind of support mechanism. Sorry, I'm coming back to my SMEs, but You're I mean, right. maybe for companies to get it done, yeah. you know, you know, put some, that's well spent public money, I would say to just you know, stimulate the market and then eventually the market will, much where we don't have a market for sustainability reporting advisors maturely enough yet. You know, Linda and her colleagues cannot do it all. You know, so maybe you know, some, some support by those governments. So that, that would be my second recommendation for uh, like building on what you said yeah. before to regulators. And then a little, uh, obviously you remember, we need to remember Brussels is the commission. The commission is the college of commissioners. Those commissioners have been nominated by your elected governments, right? And I know we often fall into this kind of dichotomy of it's us versus Brussels. No, us is Brussels. And so I think, and it's so super difficult to communicate when you are sitting there, when Martin is sitting there with a, you know, a handful of colleagues that I have to do all the technical work. And on top of that, they have to do all the explaining. So my third pledge would be for national governments to please, we are the EU, not Brussels. Every government is the EU, so dear regulator, please also take part in explaining what is happening, and then you know feel free to raise the concerns and the opportunities. But that is something that Brussels cannot do alone, and so maybe this, these are the three elements that I think regulators could do. I really much concur with your last point. Uh, I mean, I concur with all uh, your, your three points, but especially in those geographies where that topic is not as mature as it might be in other countries. It is super critical for the public authorities to raise awareness, right? If you don't educate people about what is at stake and not look at it as a pure compliance exercise, because this would be really missing the point. We're not talking about compliance here. We're talking about strategic vision and decision. It's about business. It's about how sustainable and profitable your business is going to be in the not so long term. So if this is, I think, where public authorities really have a key role to play, it's to enlighten the finance and business uh, world about what it is we're really talking about. We are not talking about yet another series of reporting obligations. We're talking about your business. And we're not so, talking about, just about the green guys, but also the transition. Exactly. Right? And that is then for everybody out there, as long as they're able to show in a credible manner that they, even if they're here, they have started. They could be they're, here. They're on their way now. Yeah. And so I think that, that, that was Martin's big point this morning, right? Where you are at lunchtime, where you said, Martin, um, you know, let's not, this is not about the green niche. 
It's actually about how to credibly also show yeah. what the transition looks like. We're not quite there yet, I think, right? Maybe we don't, we haven't elaborated all the credible, robust metrics. I know we had the conversation before, Bloomberg is working on that, others are working on that. But that is also such an important message, right? So that you're not, I think a lot of the discussion is, well, look at the Germans. Yeah, The Germans have so many, say, renewable energy companies, and then in the future they can report that they're green. And we have less. That would be a problem. But if we're talking about the entire economy and that, they, that every company out there would be able to show how they're transitioning, then we don't have that difference anymore. And that is also such an important message. Sorry, I was interrupting you, Mota. No, 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 but it's, it's, no, but it's a great yeah. point. Yeah, no, no, the, the, these are very good points and I can still, some arguments. For example, this, that this is not about reporting. It is really about the business. And this is a mega trend. I don't think it makes much sense to sort of try to fight against it because it's not going to happen. It's like, I mean, we have had uh, smaller things in the past, uh, decades ago. You remember when speed limits came about and, and everybody had to start wearing seat belts in cars. This was terrible. This was not going to happen. No, 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 no. Now everybody does. It's perfectly normal. Uh, 50 years ago, everybody was skipping their way in the sea, in the lakes, in the rivers, and when it could not be done, oh, it's a huge cost and I can't do my business anymore. Well, nowadays, that's nobody is really discussing this anymore. So this is about doing your business in the right way, paying the societal price of what you do, or then improving so that you don't need to pay. And this is, this is really what, what it is about, why we use the word sustainability here. But I think also, I just wanted to support this, uh, what Ingmar saying, yes, it, there is no Brussels, it's all the member states together. And, and whatever commission proposes, it goes through the whole legislative process before, before anything becomes law. And every member state can there have their say. So let's not blame some bureaucrats there. This, it's a fairly democratic process. But also what, what, what Maud was saying about this, that these public consultations there, that's the time to act. I saw with my own country, Finland, uh, just last year when the first uh, delegated act on climate was coming into force. At the end of the process, two years, there have been uh, public consultations and feedbacks and, and uh, I think several times that it goes to the parliament. And then in the final weeks, they wake up and say, oh, we have to fight Brussels because what they say about forestry, we don't really like. That was really too much too late. So whatever you want to do, you have to do it from the beginning and, 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 and monitor the whole process. What is going on, uh, public consultations, they are not there for nothing. They, are, they actually do have a purpose. Great debate. Well done to whomever the anonymous person was that raised that question. That was a good one. Maybe if I, I might touch on something, uh, Morden, and maybe Ingemar, both of you were talking about. I think there's the accusation that this is tools for the developed market. And actually, the problems we need to fix are more in the developing world, and certainly within the supply chain point around the developing world. Do you think these tools are fit for purpose in terms of the global reach? Or do you think they're only developed market based? For either of or either of the three of you, I have a call in the afternoon with a couple of Latin American governments who are actually developing taxonomies and who are working on disclosure regulation themselves. And what I'm going to do, basically, I've, I've just seen, you know, uh, I don't know who made this beautiful slide about what the taxonomy is and what it isn't. I've just seen it in Spanish, never seen it in Spanish before. We translated it. And so they are very much interested in the learnings now. And I think the good thing is also, to be honest, I think the title of my presentation is also like what we can also learn from the things that didn't work so well and then so they can make it better. So I think there's a lot of yeah, opportunity to get that right. 
I think it's super important, um, and I hope this is not too much of a, I don't want to be evasive, but I, I think when we talk about things like the due diligence directive, for example, that has been proposed, I think it's really important because of what I said, all the damage is basically upstream anyways. So it's maybe happening in Latin America. But uh, we did that wrong before, right? When we did, so, I mean, I think, well, I'm just gonna say it now. We, we basically forever upset the Indonesian government for not really having a proper conversation with them early on about palm oil. Hmm. Yeah? We cannot go ahead unilaterally here and ban things without talking to our partner countries. So for me, it's, it's a three-step approach. Yes, disclosure about supply chains is important. But secondly, we have to work with our partners. That means with the governments and with the companies affected by that, the companies upstream. You talk about EU companies not being able to report? Well, ask a, ask a farmer in Peru. Yeah, so we have to now work with them. So, so if, yes, disclose, yeah, supply chain disclosure. We cannot just require supply chain disclosure. We need to make it happen and work with them, I think. Yeah, because that's, that's really, they're even further away, you know. And then I think thirdly is, is again, is we're coming back to a point of convergence. So if they have, uh, if, if they are wondering now, oh, should we use the EUS approach? Or, well, maybe we should use the EU approach or maybe rather the Japanese approach. Oh, how about Switzerland, you know? How about Christoph Baumann's fantastic work and his colleagues? Yeah, that's maybe not so useful. But if we have, so in that's this global baseline is going to also be very useful, I think, to our colleagues in, in emerging economies and, and, and developing countries that, that at least then they know where the journey may be going and that they are doing something that is compatible with international markets and is also ultimately going to secure market access for their companies, right? So those are maybe the, the two or three, uh, two and a half points that I think we could do to make it happen. Because I don't want to suggest it's a fair challenge at the moment. I think the challenge is much bigger in the developing world. And maybe I'll add to that that maybe those tools cannot be used and implemented as is right now because they they face a different realities and they don't have access to the same uh, you know uh, resources to engage in the transition they're not starting from the same starting point the sectors uh, they uh, operate in might not be those that uh, we are covering for, for a number of reasons right but i think the benefit of of those instruments is that it prompts discussions and it helps actually, you know, on an international basis, starting up that dialogue about if this is going to change this way in Europe, this will have rippling effects in other economies and continents. And you work, and I like your, your examples of Palmola, Ingmar, it's, we're not operating in silos, right? When you move in one region, it, it has effects on other regions. So will those tools be uh, useful uh, you know, as they are? Probably not. They will need uh, to be adapted. The mere fact that a local you know, uh, geography continent regulator seizes the opportunity to not start from scratch, but understand how things are going to move in economic region, which is one of my biggest partners, will help them, you know, set their own path toward their own transition. And I think there's always, uh, you know, movements create movements, and th this is how we create value. I, I don't think we should, it would be really simplistic and absurd to say there's one size fits all, right? It never works. We know that. I think it's, it's how we partner with those different, uh, you know, economies to really design how they can, you know, board their own train that's going to go in the same direction we're aiming to. Yeah, no, very good. And we've got an interesting point, and more to, forgive me, I'm going to come straight back to you on this one. So someone has, has very rightly pointed out the non-financial reporting is incredibly complex, arguably more so than financial. Yes. 
Uh, so whose responsibility will it be to verify that the data that is produced is correct? Um, well, I don't know yet because this is being decided and debated uh, as part of the CSRD. So two options, either the financial auditors with other independent uh, verifiers that would have to uh, meet, you know, our standard requirements in terms of competencies, approaches, similar level of uh, expectations, or just the independent verifiers so that there's a strict, you know, uh, distinction between the financial statutory auditors and, and so basically financial information revision and the assurance of non-financial information. So, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know, you know, uh, what the, uh, the output of the negotiations will be, but I can make one comment. I think I understand the reasons why it's on the table for negotiation to really separate statutory auditors and financial information versus who's going to, uh, to assure non-financial information. But I think it's missing an important point. We are talking about the same risks and impacts that at some point translate into financial information. The approach to assurance of non-financial information is very similar, more complex, broader, but very similar to that of financial information. I'm an auditor, I have clients for whom I am both the financial auditor and the uh, non-financial auditor. It's the same team doing both works, right? So for the preparers, it's less costly in terms of risk management. It makes more sense because you have one common vision of what the risks are and you're better placed to understand how they influence each other, right? If we're going to, and we'll leave with whatever the, uh, you know, the legislative decision is, but I think it would create an additional layer of complexity to keep them both separate because you'll have to talk to two different teams. And what happens, it's at the end of the day, one of the teams, let's say the sustainability um, assurer says, I'm all fine with financial uh, information. And the statutory auditor says, but I'm not. Right? So it has other consequences than just uh, the result of assurance. And I think you just said it and whoever, uh, you know, uh, raised mm -hmm. that question said it's, it's incredibly complex already. Do we really want to add complexity to, you know, the assurance and verification part? Whatever the decision we will adapt, but I think, you know, the, the reality of, um, I mean, let's remember that the goal of uh, the CSRD when, you know, requesting for those standards to apply to everyone and that information to be assured is to make sure that non-financial information is of equal quality as that of financial information. Those two worlds of non-financial and financial auditors will have at some point to, if not become one, at least, you know, be close enough to each other that it, it actually results in what is the ultimate goal of our, of CSRD. So unsurprisingly, given, you know, what I do as a day job, I'm all in favor of, um, with controls, right? It's, it, it can't be jungle and it cannot result in a market that's going to be over uh, concentrated in, in fewer firms. I think it's good to broaden uh, the space to newcomers. But I'm not quite sure that uh, really separating the two would actually, you know, resolve the situation and create value for, for both the preparers and the user of information. You, Ayla, you might, as user of uh, assured information, you might have uh, a view on this. 
I'm not involved in that to that extent, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. I think that sounds like it does make sense. I'm not the auditing expert at all, but I think there is a, the two are linked. You can't separate one from the other. I mean, clearly the sustainability reporting has got big implications for the financials, at least for with the, with the future prospects. So I, I would really, to me, it would sound natural to keep them together. Yeah, but as simple is it, it is not. Especially, like you said, if you have to go for future. And uh, if we think about the taxonomy, so the taxonomy is actually asking you to look at revenue made from things that are substantially contributing and doing no harm or capital expenditure towards things. So you would want a marriage of financial statement to taxonomy reporting, for instance. But then you can see the flip side argument that says carbon accounting. That is a very specialist skill set. And maybe you need an independent person to verify that that data set is good going into, for example, the taxonomy report that then needs a relationship with the financial statement. Like From the lens you look at this, what do you think is the right verification approach? I could imagine the question was coming from an additional perspective, which is who is going to do it? Because, I mean, the people are just not out there yet that would be, we don't, I mean, we have enough accountants that can do financial accounting, obviously, because, uh, but not necessarily. So, so the team approach is great, but it's, it won't be so easy for every team to find somebody who can actually do the other environmental stuff, yeah. right? So that's the first one. So, I mean, so what some of my colleagues say is like, yeah, it has to go in the, um, in the curriculum today or yesterday, actually, of accounts, right? So we have to actually first build up, you know, that um, army of, um, <laughs> army of non-financial accountants, if you want, yeah. and auditors. And secondly, I think, again, our point about proportionality and materiality, I mean, that's not, we're not saying that for fun to appease business, right? We strongly believe that we should really only report what's material. And that'll, that'll help us to some extent. If we don't get that right, there will be so much environmental data out there to be initially also audited. That's such a nightmare. That's an important valve to, you know, to, to work on this and keep the uh, information somewhat focused at least. And then thirdly, another point we touched on, I think also over coffee, um, is the use of existing certification mechanisms as much as possible. You know, it's not like, you know, I come from the carbon finance market. So in the early 2000s, we were building this market for the first time. And we did do all these things. We're calling it taxonomy today, but we had it already. And, uh, and there's a bunch of experts there. So uh, I think we can build on there, but there are also, also a lot of like certified uh, institutions already, you know, the, uh, the, the famous DOEs of the, of the carbon market. And then another element of certification, and we are, we are actually making use of that in taxonomy already. And it, uh, it features already in our also tax of four report it's just existing certification. So, I mean, if you are already certified under another scheme that is acknowledged to be, you know, compatible with our environmental objectives, by all means, that should be sufficient. And you can tick that box. That would be so important. I mean, I would be so upset as a business if I've gone through all this, say, I don't know, I just take organic farming certification. You know, I'm, I'm Demeter, you know, you know, top-notch organically certified. And somebody tells me to, they come up with a new set and say, could you please do all of this? I would just tell them to bugger off, right? So, I mean, that'll be so important. I think if we then combine that, so these mixed teams, and so obviously it belongs together, that's what the experts were yeah. saying, right? Uh, and then, then the skills, that we need to still build them up and simplify and uh, keep it as material and as proportional as possible. I think that could go, and then build on what's out there. That, that could go a long way, maybe, at, at addressing your concern. 
No, absolutely. I think um, if there are any more questions in the in the room, do we have a, a show of hands for kind of the last five minutes? If anybody wants to directly ask a question, let us know. There's lots of people saying no. I think we've we've asked those main questions. Um, so there's one remaining electronically that maybe touches on some of the topics that we were raising before. And, and around materiality, so the question that's come in here is about forward-looking approaches. Um, so a lot of what we review is what we did last year, so within the last fiscal year, what were the metrics and should we report them? Um, the question here points to TCFD, so this concept of I am going to understand the risks and opportunities that climate change presents to my organisation. Maybe, more if I could start with you, in terms of what you're seeing come through the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive recommendations, is there a nice balance between the backward-looking and the forward-looking metrics that you're expecting organizations to report? I would wonder what the right balance uh, <laughs> really is. No, it's definitely easier to report on past than, than future. And most of the time, it's difficult to really grasp and make sense of forward-looking information. One, because if you don't have, and oftentimes you don't have it, the underlying scenarios and assumptions that result in that forward-looking information is just hard to make a judgment. And the reality is that one, we're talking about time horizons that we're not used to dealing with in financial reporting, even when we talk about forward-looking information, right? Mm. Long-term in financial uh, literacy is not the long-term in sustainability uh, literacy. And we're also lacking enough experience in terms of comparing those, you know, scenarios, assumptions. Also, we keep seeing news uh, every day uh, in the newspapers about, you know, there's a new uh, planetary limit being broken on clean water, right? So the scenarios themselves and the assumptions keep changing so fast that it's super challenging to keep uh, to keep track and, and remain at par with the reality of science. And, I'm, and here I'm talking about forward-looking science-based information, right? Yeah. When you talk about forward-looking social-based information, you, it's, it's even more difficult. So it's really an area of, of discomfort, I think, for everyone. And it's a, a very challenging one uh, to tackle. Some people will uh, cry out loud, like, uh, I've, I've lost my mind when I say that. But I think it might be easier to learn and progress on forward-looking information when it comes to climate versus some other uh, areas where we're just, you know, going through the jungle and, and we, we, we don't even know how we're experiencing as we go, right? So yeah. there's a long way to go. There's a question over there. There's a long way to go before we can be, uh, you know, comfortable. And uh, the SEC uh, is considering asking uh, reasonable assurance on scope three, so the value chain information of emissions, within a few years. Well, good luck with that. Good luck with that. I don't know how we'll, we get there. We'll, we'll pause to take our, our audience question. I think there's a roaming microphone that might be coming your way. Thank you so much, Istanbul from KPMG uh, C region. And uh, yeah. You covered almost everything, <laughs> what we also uh, uh, deal with on a daily basis, but maybe two areas uh, haven't been touched yet, but it's also about sustainability and, um, and alignment of standards. The first uh, area is the green bonds and also the foreseeable de development of the EU-related uh, regulations. And the second thing is the ESG rating agencies' methodologies, because we face a lot of challenge on the market that clients are a little bit uh, lost in this navigation. Thank you so much. 
That's great. Maybe the green bond standards, Isla, if you wanted to yeah. talk a little. Yeah, I was hearing that that uh, that would be uh, voted today in yes, the parliament. Yes, today. Yeah. Uh, although I haven't seen the leaders, I don't know what exactly they are voting. No, I don't. I so yeah. <laughs> the, the devil is in the detail, but uh, it has been going on the discussion for a long time. But I don't know what the what the final uh, thing is. I think it's going to come out non-mandatory to start with, at least, which is I think one of the important things that one has to try it out a little bit. Uh, the rest is one really has to see what. The the details are, but this was to me at least one of the most important ones. On, on the ESG ratings, I mean, uh, time is definitely not enough. Let me just say one thing. It's at the moment it is uh, even much more of, of a wild west than all this reporting is because there is no methodology, no standardization. Everybody does what, uh, different things. It depends whether you have this methodology, whether it's best in class or it's really absolute terms. Is it uh, focused on E or is it weighing E, S, and G all equally, and you get very different re results. I've seen one sort of analysis where the ESG ratings for a number of companies had a negative correlation because of all of these. Not because they are bad necessarily, but because they totally look at different things. Take a Tesla. If you do an ESG rating weight evenly mm. for them, or if you look at the E, they will look very good environment. If you start to look at the social and government side, um, you might have some, some doubts there. So, uh, it very much depends. And I think there's a, that's probably in the next area where we start to see some standardization and regulation and, uh, Start, somebody starting to put the house in order. Right now, it's caveat M to see what you see what you are buying. I'm conscious of time, so apologies. I'm not going to direct your your question to the other panelists. But maybe if I could just ask for a one to watch in terms of your closing point to this great audience today. What is your one to watch? We've mentioned consultations more. Your one to watch. I, I stick to public consultation. This is this is really key that the stakeholders uh, raise their concerns and suggestions now. It, it's going to be too late after that. Brilliant. Thank you. I think we're at a second vote for consultations. That's probably good. I mean, including the ESG rating consultation that's ongoing. Yeah. I mean, that'll be important. We're going to have a policy brief. Um, we can circulate 10 days before this, before it closes. People can maybe pick on our arguments and use them as well as a reply. But I mean, other than that, I think the key thing for me is at the moment double materiality in the context of the standardization of international reporting standards and how far are we going to go toward double materiality and what's going to be the compromise. In that sense, yes, participate, first of all, in the consultation and then keep watching what's happening or engaging, actually. And Ayla, you're one to watch very well, quickly. Well, I underwrite what the previous speaker said. Maybe I just do this on a lighter notice. So as you have gathered from this panel, if you have kids who are soon to go to studies and universities, auditing is the career of the future. Yes. Definitely. I love that closing yeah. point. They can say no more. Uh, thank you. We have covered an incredible amount of ground uh, today on sustainable standards. Thank you to the panel. Uh, thank you to the audience for great questions. And we look forward to speaking with you outside at any point. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Nadia. Thank you for listening to Sustainability in Finance. Check out our website at isfc.org and make sure to follow us on social media for more content. We hope you join us for the next episode.